Hello, everyone. My name is Yvonne Bendinger-Rothschild. I'm the Executive Director of the European American Chamber of Commerce. I would like to welcome you to our latest look into the crystal ball on the future of finance. Our topic today is the power and influence of central banks, both on the economy as well as on foreign policy. We will be joined by Bill Rhodes, a member of the EACC and the former Senior Vice Chairman of Citigroup and CEO of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors. Bill's leadership during the debt crisis in the 80s gained him a reputation for international financial diplomacy. He now serves as a trusted advisor to governments, financial officials and corporations worldwide. Bill's conversation partner is our friend Stuart McIntosh, the executive director of the Group of 30, an international financial think tank. His research centers on climate change, macroeconomic and systemic risk, global governance issues, as well as the political economy. Together, they will explore the complexities central banks are confronted with in today's globalized financial markets and their interdependencies. We look at the brave new world of central bank policymaking and the challenges we face to address economic downturns with the right policy instruments in an ever-changing market environment. We will also address the concerted action by the global financial market to put pressure on Russia over its attack on Ukraine and the role and options that central banks have to enforce peace. With that, I hand over to Stuart, who will be setting the stage for our podcast. Well, thanks very much, Yvonne. It's a pleasure to be back here again uh, with you and with Bill Rhodes uh, to talk about the power of central banks today and tomorrow and to give a bit of a sense of how we're thinking and how we should think about that power, its uh, proper usage, its implications and the challenges ahead. And I know we, we should perhaps start and this is where I might hand over to Bill Rhodes, who has been engaging with central banks for many, many decades, advising Paul Volcker, advising other leaders around the world and working with them indeed to solve global problems for many decades. Bill, how do you see the evolution of central bank power in the last, let's say, 10 to 15 years? Has there been a, a sea change, as it were, in terms of level of power, influence, and to some degree, effectiveness as well? Well, I would certainly say that there has been a change in the whole mentality of how central banks have acted since the time of the Great Recession. Because at that point in time, the central banks of the so-called developed world, particularly in Europe and the United States, and to a certain extent in Japan, China, and you might want to say also in some of the other emerging market countries, were forced to take on special powers to make sure that the Great Recession didn't turn into a Great Depression. These powers turned not only to just adjusting interest rates, but to go into active bond buying and expanding substantially the balance sheet of the central banks. As an example, in the Fed, when the Great Recession began, uh, the balance sheet of the Fed was less than a trillion dollars. By the time it ended up, it was somewhere in the order of about 800 billion, it was close to 4 trillion. It is now substantially larger than that, maybe seven or eight. And you've had a similar type buildup in the balance sheet of the European Central Bank and the Bank of England. So I think there has been a great change. And of course, in the case of Europe and the ECB, all of this was exacerbated by the European debt crisis. 
So the powers of uh, the European Central Bank and the Fed and the Bank of England have been expanded substantially to what they were prior to the Great Recession. And the latest problem that they had to face was COVID, where you saw an even unparalleled expansion in the uh, balance sheets, uh, the bond buying of the major central banks, Europe, the United States, and some in the emerging markets. That's a very good point, Bill. The, The scale of action by central banks really has changed. It took off in the GFC a decade ago and then and then has accelerated even more in the response to the pandemic. And there is this tension, don't you think, between an understanding and recognition of exceptional policies as being necessary in crisis, that is in the crisis in 0809 and in the crisis today and then over the last two years, and the difficulty of rolling back that action when the crisis dissipates. The GFC powers hadn't been fully rolled back before we entered into this latest episode of pandemic crisis, resulting in even more aggressive action, which was, again, necessary. And then we now have the additional exogenous shock of uh, the war with Ukraine complicating matters further. So it seems to me, at least, that the, the central banks are, are standing now so as, as sort of twin giants of of the economic scene alongside the governments, but they haven't stepped back yet. The difficulty is is sort of trying to conceptualize when we go back to normal. When do central banks, if ever, do they begin to pull back on these exceptional policies and exceptional powers that they've been exercising? I suspect, and I don't know what you think, Bill, that your great friend, Paul Volcker, uh, would have said, perhaps this, this has gone too far. Perhaps we've gone too far. Perhaps central banks are trying to do too much. How do you view it? I How think do you the, view challenge, it? the challenge here, as you're pointing out, is what is the next step of the central banks? Because with all of this bond buying and expansion of the balance sheets of the central banks, including, we can't forget, the expansion on the fiscal side of, of treasuries, uh, you're starting to get high levels of inflation the like of which we have not seen since the late 1970s, early 1980s, which is very concerning. And this has been most recently exacerbated by the rise in fuel prices and other commodities due to the uh, Russian invasion of the Ukraine. And a lot of uh, prominent economists think that the Fed and the ECB have waited too long to raise interest rates, and they may have actually spurred inflation too much, and that we could get into a period of stagflation as well as inflation, the like of which we've not seen since the late 1970s and early 80s when uh, Jimmy Carter was forced to call in Paul Volcker to slay the dragon of inflation. And of course, we know what the result of that was. He was forced to raise interest rates in the United States up to 20% which caused the Latin American debt crisis and a tremendous problem in the emerging markets. And so we now are facing a situation like that, but it's more complicated because at that point, we weren't in a war situation, which we have not been in in the world and particularly not in Europe since the 1940s. So 
this is the most difficult situation that we have probably faced, not only since World War II, but some people think in the last century. And central banks are certainly the key here as to how they move in the sense of pulling back and do they do it too gradually or too fast to throw the world economy into major recession or stagflation. So it is a very difficult situation that they are all facing. Of course, Bill, part of the paradox of the lever of interest rate policy and monetary policy is that when you see excessive inflation really taking hold, as we might be seeing now with inflation in the United States running at well above 7% and possibly going even higher still. So certainly the highest inflation rate in 40 plus years. So back to Volcker again, in terms of when we look at the history of inflation in America, you know, part of the paradox is in order to get to grips with this, we need to have rapid increases in interest rates by the central bank. And yet yesterday, uh, the central bank in the United States only increased by 25 basis points. Of course, they've said they're going to increase it by another six times this year, up to another six times. So more aggressive than they had hitherto anticipated uh, only a few weeks ago. So clearly policy is being tightened. But are we being too slow? Is the central bank community still being too slow on this inflationary question? Uh, Are we behind the curve uh, having built up these powers, exercised these powers uh, during the GFC and then subsequently during the pandemic, which we are now, one hopes, gradually coming out of. Are you worried about us being behind the curve, Bill? Very much so. And it's not just the Fed. It's also the European Central Bank, because there's a lot of difference of opinion among the members of the board of the European Central Bank with the Deutsche Bundesbank in Germany, the Netherlandische Bank in Holland basically, along with others, pushing for higher interest rates. So if you take a look at the inflation in Europe, it is really corresponding in many ways, although not quite as high to the United States. And the first major central bank to really act on this was the Bank of England, which started to increase interest rates at the beginning of the year. So I definitely feel that not only is the Fed behind the curve on this, but also the European Central Bank. But I think there's more unanimity uh, within the board of the Fed than there is in the board of the ECB, which is going to be a problem for Europe. Now, one of the central banks that we haven't talked too much about is the People's Bank of China, which is the world's second largest economy. And there, the central bank is not independent. And they have started to adjust an easy money policy due to the problems that China is facing in the property sector. And then you have the Bank of Japan, which has been caught up uh, very strongly with the excesses of bond buying that they've had over the past few years. So it's, it's sort of a mixed picture. But I think this is by far the most difficult, I would say, challenge to major central banks in the world, at least since Paul Volcker and probably since World War II and maybe even uh, earlier than that. I think we need to mention, and you touched on it, what's going on in Russia, because what we could have in the middle of all of this is a major country and central bank, which is not independent, which is a central bank of Russia uh, and Russia defaulting on its external debt, which has not happened formally since you know the time of the fall of the Soviet Union. And some people would take you back 
to the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, depending on what you talk about, because the last time they defaulted was on local debt. But the previous time they defaulted on external debt was at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. So we are facing, as I said, the most complicated situation we have faced in modern times. And I would remind you of the famous expression of McChesney Martin, who was one of the famous heads of the Federal Reserve, who made the comment, which is often repeated, that when the party gets too lively, you've got to take away the punch bowl. And uh, those were the easy days because the punch bowl now has gotten so big and complicated that it's not going to be so easy. I had the pleasure of sharing offices with Paul Volcker for several years and certainly prior to his passing. And he was a close personal friend since 1982. And I think he must be turning over his grave when he sees what's going on in central banks expanding their balance sheets and ignoring inflation, uh, because he always warned that people, frankly, had forgotten the lessons of the late 70s and early 80s when he had to raise interest rates to this extent. And he mentions it prominently in his memoirs. That's a good point, Bill. And to pull us a little bit back to the point you made also about the situation of the Russian central bank, I mean, this is another example of remarkable power of central banks acting in concert with the fiscal authorities and the government authorities. Now, Central Bank, the Federal Reserve Bank, of course, and the ECB and the other major advanced economy central banks are operationally independent, most of the time guaranteed by law. But nonetheless, in the response to the war with Ukraine, they have taken exceptional steps to freeze the reserves of the Russian Central Bank and thus put pressure on President Putin. I wonder if President Putin was fully aware that that was possible. Perhaps he knew, perhaps he was told, but didn't remember or didn't seek to pay attention to that because clearly that has had a massive impact in Russia. It circumscribes their room for maneuver. It makes it much harder for them to finance the war, although, of course, high oil prices help them to do that. So I raise that just by underscoring that the power of central banks here can be seen again in their concerted action in agreement with national governments to basically respond to the aggression of Putin and his uh, attack on Ukraine. Maybe I can turn it a little bit also now and raise a separate but important related question, which touches on some of what you've already said, Bill, which is emerging market economy central bankers often say, and they often complain, that advanced economy central bank policies and monetary policies give them headaches and cause them pain. That is to say that there are spillover effects any time the Federal Reserve Board makes an interest rate decision. And indeed, as you know, before this latest first small interest rate increase announced uh, yesterday, emerging market economy interest rates had already begun to rise, putting pressure on those economies, putting pressure on sovereign debt, putting pressure on those firms in those economies. Are you worried about those spillover effects? That is to say, the adverse effects of advanced economy tightening, belated tightening, albeit, 
on these other economies that now have to deal with this spillover? Well, before I answer that, Stuart, I should go back to China because the People's Bank of China is not independent. China is the world's second largest economy. And one of the reasons most people think that Putin felt confident in starting this war in the Ukraine and being able to withstand financial sanctions was that China had his back and the Chinese banking system and the People's Bank of China would be supportive of the Russian Central Bank and uh, the Chinese banks would be supportive of the Russian banks in this situation. And the real question is, what is China going to be doing with regards uh, to Russia? The other reason for the confidence of Putin, I think, and the Russians was that they had built up $630 billion worth of gold and they thought that they could withstand short-term financial sanctions because, of course, they thought they would roll over the Ukraine in a couple of weeks like they did Crimea in 2014. But what occurred here was something different because since they've been thrown out of SWIFT, they're having problems monetizing this gold. So we have, a, as I said, we have a special situation going on here now, which will determine a lot of what central banks do going forward. As far as the emerging markets go, there's no doubt that this will impact the emerging markets substantially. Because every time that you have major inflation in the developed world and interest rates go up, particularly in the major currency areas like the U.S. dollar and the euro, the emerging markets feel it because a lot of them have borrowed heavily in foreign currency, mainly dollars, some in euros. And then this also, today you have a new phenomenon because the uh, largest lender to the emerging markets today is China. Uh, and so they have to take into account also uh, what the role of China would be. But this is a movie we've all seen before, but it's more complicated now. So this will be a major hit to many emerging market economies, particularly those that don't produce oil and gas and other strategic minerals. So we are facing a situation here, which is frankly the most complicated I can remember in my life. That's a very good point. Bill, and it leads me to observe that the power of central banks, the influence of central banks has never been greater than it is at the moment. And that it doesn't seem probable that this is going to wane, that they're going to sort of, after one hopes we get to a period of greater economic stability and, and geopolitical stability, that they will pull back and, and, and sink back into the background. This is in contrast with the you know, central bankers in decades past, one might say prior to uh, to both Paul Volcker and, and, and Alan Greenspan, certainly was the case in the United Kingdom that many years ago, people didn't know who the governor of the Central Bank of England was. They didn't know. They didn't know their name. They didn't know what they looked like. They didn't really matter. I mean, sure, they mattered to the city of London. Uh, if you were a bank chairman, you knew who he was, but you wouldn't know it as a normal person. But today, I mean, Janet Yellen, Jay Powell, Andrew Bailey, these figures are real giants and they're not going to shrink back. They're going to re remain at the forefront now that they have that role. And this puts them under some considerable pressure for accountability, for transparency, and makes them 
well, accountable for the failures and the policymaking decisions they take much more than they would have been in the past where they could have flown below the uh, radar, as it were. Where do you see the challenges? Let's assume for the moment that we get past the disastrous current series of policy challenges. But where do you see that the future challenges and the future difficulties for the central banks going forward, Bill? What should we be looking at over the horizon, as it were? Well, I think to start off with, Stuart, I think many central bankers are not comfortable with this role because they've been taking on the role of the chief protagonist in all of these problems and stress that we've been seeing and talking about. And people forget there's a fiscal side too here. And you really need a combination of both fiscal, as you know, and monetary policy to get the job done. And so I think the central bankers of the world would be very happy to see their role recede because they are under tremendous political pressure and uh, they don't like to be because they think this is influencing their decisions and I think they're correct. So one of the real challenges, are we gonna get back to some balance between fiscal policy and monetary policy? And only time will tell, and I think we should revisit this subject within a few months time, let's say six months time, after the situation is clarified uh, in what is going to happen with, uh, with Russia and the Ukraine and also what the major central banks are going to do to confront uh, the inflationary problem that they have. Yeah, I think that's well taken. There is a tendency once an actor takes on more responsibilities for them to say, well, I'll also do this and I should do this as well. And maybe I should also take responsibility for this. And so the policy universe that you are responsible for expands and expands and sometimes central bankers are finding themselves being charged with or assumed to be partially responsible for things, as you say, over which they don't have principal mandate of responsibility or a particular ability to influence. And so maybe we would be better off if they did pull back a little bit. I know certainly that there are market participants, investors and, and asset managers who would like that, who say, look, We shouldn't be in a circumstance where the world's largest central banks are essentially making markets because they're taking the place of investors, sometimes in emergencies and rightly so, but then they end up staying in that place. And that's why we need to see a drawdown in the balance sheets of the central banks, a return to some degree of normality, and that means slightly higher interest rates as well. And it wouldn't be the end of the world if that happened, notwithstanding the histrionics of the markets, that a lot of people would benefit from modestly higher interest rates, especially if they also help restrain high inflation that needs to be tamped down, which after all is a huge essential tax on the working class and the working poor who end up having to pay most of those higher prices. So it's a big it's a big challenge ahead, and I'm with you on that, uh, Bill. I think we have to keep channeling Paul Volcker and others who have have in their in their lives grappled with these problems and restrained inflation and restrained policy ex- excesses. Uh, Bill, anything uh, anything you want to say towards the end of this? This has been an excellent conversation as always. Well, I think one of the things we have to look about is what is the new normal going to be here. 
And I think what the new normal should be is that the central banks do pull back and reduce their balance sheets and that these you know, secretaries of the Treasury finance ministers take a more active role because it's very easy for them to excuse problems and blame it on the central bankers. So I think you need more of a balance here going forward, but that will not happen in the short term. But over time, I think we need to get back to that balance. I think we need to see the expansion of central bank balance sheet cut back to more normality, uh, which is what I refer to as the new normal. And we'll have to follow that, as I said, very closely in the months to come. And I think we should have another session to see how things play out going forward. So thank you very much for the questions. Thank you to the European American Chamber, uh, Yvonne, for having set up, uh, I think, what is a uh, hopefully was a very interesting conversation. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure. And thank you to Yvonne and to Paolo and the whole team there. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the EACCNY Pulse. Please don't forget to rate and review this podcast episode and be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on transatlantic business insights. For more information about the European American Chamber of Commerce and how to join, please reach out to membership at eacny.com. We look forward to hearing from you.